what timing to have Ruth Bader Ginsburg die right before this conference. Uh, politics is on all of your minds, right, to some degree. Uh, we got an October surprise a few weeks early, uh, and we have a mini civil war on, on hand possibly. So this is going to be talking about politics from a perspective you probably won't hear. If you tune into a, a news station through the week, whether you're watching it or listening to some guy on the radio or you know, what you'll see in your Facebook feed, I'm going to try to make this something that is a distinctly Christian approach to it. Um, I have lots of personal opinions on politics, and I'm sure Pastor Dan does, um, but the authority that a pastor has uh, is based on what Scripture says. Let's do something. No, we have to be really careful that we don't bind people's consciences with our personal preferences. So what I'm going to try to do in this uh, morning time and in the sermon is try to distinguish between those things of knowing when you it's okay to have personal opinions and preferences, and then what must Christians believe, and then and then how do you interact with each other when you differ over how you land on political opinions and policies and such. So that's where we're going. Um, I'm, by the way, I'm one of the, one of the pastors of Bethlehem Baptist Church. Maybe you heard of John Piper. He was a pastor there for over 30 years. And when he was a pastor there, he would say this often. He'd say he, there were two groups in the church that uh, he would feel were uh, experiencing a tension with each other. So on the one hand, this, there's this group that's passionate about evangelism and global missions. They want to tell people about Jesus. And then there's another group that's not against that, obviously, but they're, they're passionate about social action. So ministries to the poor, uh, to recovering addicts, to women with crisis pregnancies, to marginalized minorities. That's a good thing, to be passionate about that. And he would, he would notice that the two groups could be frustrated with each other and feel like what we're doing is more important than what you're doing. And, and what Piper would, would do, he said he'd, he'd try to breathe oxygen on both of their fires, and, and he'd try to bring them all together with this sentence— Christians care about all suffering, dash, especially eternal suffering. So what he does is he he puts all that ministry to people in a perspective of what's more ultimate, what's more important. It's all important, but some is more important, and we can agree to that and all care about it all. I find that helpful. Uh, So you can... You can check him out. He's, he's got some talks on that. Just Google that. So right now, I'm guessing there are some of you in this room who are feeling a similar tension as you think about politics. I'm guessing that everyone here cares passionately about justice. If you're professing to follow Jesus, and Jesus is a just king, you care about justice. You want justice to be done. You care about justice. And you're probably aware of all kinds of areas in this country where there are injustices and that bothers you, and it, it, it makes you more concerned that we should fix that. That's not right, and that, that's a good impulse to feel that way. But what's happening right now, at least as I can see things in the, the evangelical world that's similar to churches like this one, so people who are theologically conservative, what's happening is some churches are feeling tension that's building and even some fracturing within the churches where it, it's almost like people in the church are thinking, if you don't agree with me on this, then you need to either leave our church or I, I got to leave the church. We can't coexist. That, that's happening. And from what I can tell, it's not happening here. Uh, I'm not an expert on this church, but I, I did a little bit of digging and it sounds like you guys are just fine. So that's encouraging. 
But still, it could happen. So we need to talk about it uh, and prepare for it. So uh, let's talk about the how, what I mean by politics, and we'll, we'll jump into the handout you've got there. So a typical way to define politics is about publicly distributing power over an entire population. And as I'm addressing politics, I'm thinking of it primarily in the Democratic Republic of the United States, where we are now, that's our context. But I, I think what I'm going to say is going to apply to other, other governments in other parts of the world. I've got three questions to ask. It's on your handout. In this first session, I'm going to just ask the first one. So why do Christians passionately disagree with one another over politics? And I'll ask the second two questions, God willing, in the sermon to follow. Um, what I'm doing right now, by the way, is I'm condensing two writings I recently worked on with a, a friend named Jonathan Lehman. So he wrote a little book. Uh, what's it called? Uh, How Can I Love Church Members with Different Politics? And then he wrote an article that's online for Themelios called Politics, Conscience, and the Church. And I, I'm kind of condensing all that work and reworking it a little bit for, for this context. All right, so first question. Why do Christians passionately disagree with one another over politics? I'm going to give you what I think are two reasons for that. And then I'm hoping to finish a little early so that we can have some Q&A. I know it's dangerous, but I think that's more interesting for you and it's a, it's a better learning opportunity. So that's, that's what I'm aiming for and then be done, done by 10, 10. All right. So I'm going to unpack this first reason with five statements. Here's the first reason. Because Christians passionately care about justice and believe that their political convictions promote justice. So first statement is we've got to define justice. You know, if, you, if we miss this one, if we, if we define justice incorrectly, it's like we gave away the farm. It's, we, we have nothing else to talk about, really. Like, we've got to get this right. So let's start there. What is justice? Statement one, justice, according to the Bible, is making righteous judgments. So let me unpack that. It's doing what's right according to the standard of God's will and character as he's revealed it in his word in the Bible. And, and the, the word justice first occurs in the Bible when God says that he chose Abraham and his descendants to bless the nations, here it is, Genesis eighteen nineteen, by doing righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice. And interestingly, a third of the word of the times justice appears in the Old Testament, the word righteousness occurs right next to it. Justice and righteousness, they, they, they go together. The standard of justice is not contemporary community standards. It's not, all right, let's take a vote, and whatever we vote on as, is the right thing, that's justice. Well, it'd be very easy to think through the history of the world where groups of people took that approach, and they collectively decided on something that was unjust. That can't be our standard. Uh, contemporary community standards cannot be the standard. It's got to be God's righteousness. So justice and righteousness begin with God's own character. So what, what God commands us to do is expressing his will and his character. His, his righteousness, God's righteousness, is what makes human rights right. Make sense? God's righteousness is what makes human rights right. That's where we got to start. What, what we call human rights are right only if God says they're right. So the word justice in the Bible is interchangeable with the word judgment. It's the noun form of the verb judge. It's, so justice is fundamentally judging or making a judgment, hence the definition here. It's making a righteous judgment according to God's righteousness. It's a righteous judgment. So it's got the standard, God's will, and the action applying it 
according to that standard. My favorite way to illustrate this is with King Solomon. And King, uh, so 1 Kings, what chapter is it? 3, 1 Kings 3, uh, Solomon is standing before uh, these two moms. One of them has a living baby, one has a dead baby. You know the story. I won't, I won't go to the passage and read it to you. And he makes a decision where he, he says, all right, let's cut the living baby in two and half for, half for one, half for the other. And the real mother says, no, 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 no. And the, the one who's not the real mother says, oh, that's okay. And then Solomon says, ah, so now we know who the real mother is. It, and then what does the text say? It, this is 1 Kings 3.28. All Israel stood in awe of the king. Here's why. Because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do what? To do justice. The wisdom of God was in Solomon to do justice. What was he doing? He was applying a righteous judgment. He's, he's applying a righteous judgment like Proverbs 29.4 says. By justice, by applying a righteous judgment, a king builds up the land. Furthermore, context is important for doing what justice requires. So if I'm thinking in a mathematical formula, doing justice equals making a righteous judgment plus context. You've got to do it in a specific context. So in a courtroom, doing justice means you don't show partiality and you don't accept bribes. In a marketplace, it means you have a just balance and scales. So it's making a righteous judgment in a particular context. Now, how does that contrast with how many people in our, con- our cultural context think about justice now? Many people today think that, that justice, that, the, that the, the, the essence of justice is rights. Justice equals rights. What do you think about that? Justice equals rights? Well, that's like offering the fruit without the root. Uh, it, the fruit of rights without any standard of righteousness for measuring which rights are right. If you insist on justice equaling rights, then what's going to happen? People will enshrine whatever they want with the language of rights and justice. And then they'll say things like, uh, I believe that a woman has the right to fill in the blank with what she does with her baby in her womb. Or on and on, I can multiply examples where suddenly we when we have justice equals rights, it's not justice equals making a righteous judgment based on God's standards. It's a big divergence. So as Christians, we are all for justice. We're pro-justice. As long as we define justice according to the Bible, that's just critical because what's happening in, in, in contemporary culture right now is people are using the word justice and defining it not according to the Bible. And so we, we use the same word, but we mean different things by it. And we don't want to lose that word. <laughs> Our God is just. He's a God of justice. We, that, that's not a word we're giving up. We just need to define what it means according to Scripture. All right, that's statement number one. Statement number two, Christians passionately care about justice. Is that true of you? You Christians? Do you care about justice? think that's, that any Christian would be able to say, yeah, I do. And, and why is that? Well, fundamentally, because you're made in God's image. You're an image bearer. You're like God in that way. And, and more than that, because justice characterizes God and you're following God. So 
Psalm 9 says that God has established his throne for justice. Jeremiah 9, he practices and delights in justice and righteousness. Zephaniah 3, every morning he shows forth his justice. Psalm 89, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Isaiah 5, he's exalted in justice. I go on and on. God is a God of justice. He loves justice, and we love God, so we love justice. That's the way it works. Uh, We passionately care about justice because the just God has justified Christians. So justification is to justice what faith is to works. Justification is to justice what faith is to works. So genuine faith results in good deeds. That's what faith is to works. Genuine faith results in good works. Doing good works is an evidence of genuine faith. Here's the, the parallel. Being justified results in a desire to do justice. Doing justice is evidence of being justified. Justified people care about justice. Statement number three, governments exist for the purpose of justice. Praise God for governments. He invented it. It's his idea. Read, read from the very beginning under the Noahic Covenant, uh, Je- Genesis 9. Uh, this is something that God created uh, governments to do justice for everyone created in his image. Uh, Romans 13, 1 to 7 talks about this as well. So the, the governments exist to uphold justice. So when we talk about current issues, whether it's abortion or immigration or poverty or so-called same-sex marriage or whatever the issue, it's an issue that relates to justice. We're, we're fundamentally talking about doing justice and opposing injustice. And here's where things get a little tricky and, and semi-controversial is when you add an adjective before the word justice. So some might say, I don't like to add adjectives, it's, there's just one justice. Well, according to the way people are speaking, uh, so we define words by how people use them now. Here, here are some different adjectives people stick in front of the word justice. Here's one, one, one word. It's procedural, I think. Yeah, procedural justice. That's how a society makes fair decisions. Retributive justice. So that's how to fairly punish criminals. Distributive justice. Uh, I'm not sure I'd use that category, but it, it's how the government distributes or redistributes its nation's resources. And then the most controversial one starts with an S. Maybe you heard this one. Social, social justice, which speaks to societal structures broadly and includes elements of other subcategories of justice. And we might debate about whether that's a, a good category to have and how to define it. But I will say this, uh, that whole discussion has provided a category that some modern American Christians may not have had, and that's this. It's that individuals are not the only ones who can be unjust. Systems can be unjust. That, so let me just show you that from Scripture. Um, in Esther 3, sinful people pass sinful laws and support sinful institutions and societal practices. In Esther, Haman convinces the king to do what? To enact this genocide against the Jews. It's, that was evil, and it affects lots of people. Uh, what started as a sin of two individuals quickly becomes institutional. And it's something bigger than individuals. It's something that no individual could stop. That's, what, that's a, a category that is helpful to have. Here's another example, Isaiah 10. Isaiah warned against iniquitous decrees and writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right. Luke 11, Jesus condemns the experts in the Mosaic law for loading burdens on people that were too hard for them to bear. 
Acts 6, the first church unjustly neglected widows or Greek-speaking Jews. Those are examples of an institutional injustice. Now, just to clarify, I question the just. I question the wisdom of using the term social justice because for many today, it's a technical term in contemporary critical theory, which I don't think is compatible with Christianity. I'll say more about that, God willing. It's either tonight or tomorrow night, but it's coming. All right. Statement number four. Uh, In our political context, people on the right and left tend to emphasize different aspects of the government's work of dispensing justice. I'm painting with really broad brushstrokes here, okay? So in general, people on the right tend to emphasize justice as righteously punishing wrongdoers. And in general, people on the left tend to emphasize lifting up the wrong. I know, that's broad brushes. Um, I believe the Bible emphasizes both. So here's, here's Psalm 72. May the king judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Psalm 72. Statement number five. Christians passionately believe that their political convictions promote justice. Now, you might be right in your opinions about justice. You might be wrong, but if, if it's your conviction, you, it's a conviction because you believe it, right? Uh, you think you're right. And, and, and what can happen is you can, for some issues, be passionate about your view on an issue. Uh, and that can be good if you're right. <laughs> but imagine if you were wrong and you were passionate about it, uh, the damage that could come. So let me just issue a caution for all of us, for me included. Our, our hearts are fallen, and a fallen heart always thinks it's right. Always thinks its cause is just. Adam and Eve's decision to partake of the fruit in the garden required a self-justifying argument, and we've all been self-righteous and self-justifying since that time. So, self-justifying people tend to be certain that their convictions are just, and that's why we're tempted to scorn others and second-guess others when our convictions don't line up, even if it's a fellow church member. So, that's uh, the first reason. I'm suggesting that Christians passionately disagree over politics. And when I say passionately, I'm not talking like one person votes Republican, another votes independent. I'm talking one votes Republican and another might vote Democrat. And they, they, they are, in, 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 there's, there's a, a tension that can't even be fellow church members. That's what I'm talking about. Okay, so first reason is that uh, Christians passionately care about justice and believe their political convictions promote what they perceive as justice. The second reason is like the first, and that's this. Uh, Christians have different degrees of wisdom for making political judgments and tend to believe that they have more wisdom than those who differ. <laughs> uh, so so most, most political judgments depend on wisdom. And only God is all wise. You are not. I am not. So when we make a political judgment and we don't have all wisdom, we can't be absolutely certain that our judgment is exactly the way God thinks of that issue. So even if Christians agree on biblical principles, we're going to agree often over methods and tactics and timing. Uh, Wisdom is a posture and a skill. It's a posture of fearing the Lord. It's a skill of making productive 
and righteous decisions, and life is full of complex, complicated decisions. You know that if you're a parent, so many choices you make trying to shepherd your children faithfully that you just need wisdom. You're not sure what to do. Uh, For elders trying to shepherd a church, so many complicated decisions. What do we do? You need wisdom. We need wisdom for living in this life. And, and, And wisdom is that posture of fearing the Lord and making productive, righteous decisions. So here's, here's an a analogy I like. Like cars need fuel, political judgments need wisdom. Wisdom is what fuels political judgments. So when, when Solomon made that wise decision in, before the two um, mothers, what was he doing? Uh, it was revealing that his goal was justice and the means was wisdom. That's how he made uh, that just decision. And the goal of politics is justice, and the means is wisdom. And five examples may help us illustrate that the most controversial political issues depend on wisdom. So I've got five lined out there for you on your handout, and we're going to go straight into Q&A after this, I think. So what could, what could go wrong here? Uh, all right, first, let's talk about abortion. Now, I'm not going to make an extended case here. Uh, I, I believe, and I'm, I'm guessing that your pastors would believe, that life begins at conception in the womb, and that a person is a person no matter how small, and that uh, intentionally killing a person, whether in a womb or out of the womb, is sinful. Okay, so that's, that, I'm, I'm going to assume that conviction. Um, and if uh, a person in this church, a member of this church, was guilty of unrepentant murder of a person, no matter how big or small, then your church would lovingly pursue, I think, church discipline with that person, saying, you've got to repent. And if they refuse to repent, you'd say, we can no longer affirm you as a, as a fellow Christian, as, as, as a fellow church member. Uh, okay, I just heard your pastor say, right. So that's how you... Good, good. Okay. Now, given that, Christians don't agree on all the political tactics for opposing uh, the injustice of abortion. So some uh, might argue, all right, if there's this bill we could pass that would say all abortions are illegal except for ones regarding incest and rape, would you vote for it? Because someone could say, if we could pass that, then 90-something percent, probably 99% of abortions wouldn't happen. But someone else might say, no, that's compromise. It's all murder. It's, it's all or nothing. So, so, so people could agree that abortion is sinful and disagree on the tactics for how to address it politically. So at that level of disagreement, I think fellow church members should be able to say, I disagree with you and still celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Okay, I'm seeing some people nodding. I'm not sure what the rest of you are thinking. All right, so that's what I have in mind, okay, that's what I have in mind when uh, uh, we can have different strategies. Um, here's another example. So Mark Dever, he's a pastor in Washington, D.C., he said privately that he wouldn't say from the pulpit, okay, I don't know, if, if your pastor does this here, that's fine. All right, this is an example. He said he wouldn't say from the pulpit that uh, the church should go pr- promote a pro-life march. And his reasoning 
is that he doesn't want to use his pastoral authority to communicate that Christians must adopt the, the political strategy of marches to combat abortion. I think that that's helpful because the Bible doesn't say that we should adopt that strategy. And for a pastor to use his influence that way could almost sound to people like Christians must do that or else they're disobedient. But that's a strategy. So that's different than opposing abortion. That's, that's Bible. But strategies for opposing abortion are different. Are you guys with me? Okay. All right. That, that's the first one. Here's the second one. Immigration. So there's a, there's a current controversy right now about uh, Central and South American asylum seekers and other migrants crossing the, the border from the southern United States. So one group of Christians believes that the present laws are just fine. If anything, they should be tougher. Look, we, we should tighten the restrictions to protect our nation and our children. That, that's one, one view. Another group of Christians argues that humanitarian considerations means we should allow as many migrants in as the present law allows and even change those laws to accommodate more. So you got one side, they're saying we need to protect our children. You got another side saying we need to show compassion to asylum seekers. And would, could we agree that both of those are good impulses? Okay. Uh, still, there's a long way to go between affirming those biblical principles and actually determining the best political policy. I mean, here, here are some questions. That I'd love to hear answers that the Bible requires. I don't know if, if there are any. How many migrants should a nation permit a year? Give me a number. How many asylum seekers? How, how will that affect the economy and people's livelihoods? What's the best way to prevent and combat drug and human trafficking? Is the nation obligated to undertake all the costs of processing the hundreds and thousands of migrants who might show up at the borders? And in what conditions should refugees be housed at the border? And what about child-parent separation at the border? And what, intent, what, what unintended consequences might follow from this or that decision? My point is to say, this is complicated. Uh, and as a pastor, I don't have the authority to say, the Bible requires you to think and do this about the issue of immigration in our country right now. I could, I could say the Bible presents these principles, and we need wisdom on how to apply them in our situation. And at least for me, maybe not for your pastors, but for me, how to triangulate all that and come up with the best way forward, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, so th those are tough questions that require wisdom. I do have opinions. I'm, not, I'm, I'm intentionally not telling you what I'm thinking, uh, but I've got opinions, but I'm not, they're not anywhere close to, you must believe this. So the revealed wisdom of God in the Bible is different from the wisdom of man, uh, and we need the wisdom of man to make nearly every political judgment. Uh, so political judgments depend on figuring out how do we apply the Bible to all these complex circumstances that surround every political decision. So when you, when you feel anger at what you perceive to be a political injustice, like an, in, like an aspect of immigration, I'll see this sometimes growing through Facebook. I'm friends with a lot of people, but I hide most of them except for people in my church because that's the way to keep tabs on them. Uh, and, and I'll see things all over the spectrum. And some will, be, will say very strong things about immigration. Like I'll post a link to a story of some you know, heart-rending story about 
something to happen at the border and demand that Christians believe or think this and do this about how to fix that injustice. Um, well, uh, when, you're, when you're responding that way, you're responding with a negative moral judgment against what you perceive to be injustice, and it's, it's possible for you to make a political judgment that lacks wisdom, and it's possible for you to respond sinfully to what you perceive. It's also possible for you to be right. But I'm saying we, we, we need to have that category for, I could be wrong about this and how I'm putting all this together. All right, that's example two. My, my goal is for all of you to, to hate me before I finish. So here we go. Just kidding. All right. Example three is tax rates. Christians agree the Bible condemns stealing, right? Stealing's bad. Uh, it, some infer that a progressive income tax is unjust because it arises from covering, excuse me, it, the progressive income tax, some would say, it, it, it arises from when people covet the rich, the wealth of the rich, and that it amounts to stealing. So when you say the rich need to pay their fair share, that doesn't offer a standard by which to judge what counts as fair. Now others might say, well, a progressive income tax is better than a flat tax because Jesus said, everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. I'm holding back critiquing the arguments here. I'm just giving arguments. Uh, so they'd say it's fair because they don't deserve the extra they have. So you have the first group saying, well, that passage has nothing to do with tax rates. And the second group says it applies to all of life and then back forth, back forth, different political judgments. Uh, is there a biblical position on tax rates? I think you could apply wisdom that would lead you a certain way, not another. But again, I, I, I'm not confident enough to say this is the Christian position on tax rates. You understand what I'm trying to communicate here? All right. Example four, political alliances. If you want to get things done in a democratic system, you've got to make alliances with people who you don't agree with on everything. And that's why we've got, we've got what we call political parties. Uh, so there are not enough people who think exactly like we do on every issue, so we have to join together with people who agree on the significant clump of issues to get anything done. But when you form a, an alliance like that, it raises moral questions. So are we culpable for any unjust legislation that the other members of our political party managed to pass into law? And what if the other party does even more injustice? Does it, does it make a difference if the injustice we're talking about is a small injustice versus a big injustice? And how big is big? Does it make a difference if we're comparing evil rhetoric versus evil policies? Using code words. And then what if one alliance makes us Christians and our witness looks hypocritical while the other means siding with those who explicitly oppose us? We, we need wisdom for this. Example five, political parties. I'll spend the most time on this one because this is the most controversial, I think. It's, it's kind of cumulative for all the other ones. Uh, I want to emphasize up front that I, th I think what should unify a local church is not that you're a Republican or whatever, but that you follow Jesus. That, that, that's critical. We love and adore the triune God, and we don't agree on every political judgment. Uh, we agree about what's most important. So I'm going to share with you how my conscience is functioning right now as we go about thinking about political parties in America. And I, I could be wrong. I, I'm, this is, I'm trying to exercise wisdom. I'm trying to make a righteous judgment, political judgment, and I could be wrong. So from my vantage point, this, the political landscape keeps changing. 
Uh, each election cycle, it's not the same as the last one. Uh, political parties have platforms that change. I, I know this year the Republican Party kept theirs from 2016, but usually they come up with a new platform. And if you look at those each cycle, there are new elements, new wording, new positions added. And as it happens, uh, I notice that uh, what what was true a decade or two decades ago is no longer true today with reference to political parties. So voting for a political party could be a, oh, doesn't really matter, yes or no, one day, and then five, ten years later, it could be a, oh, you probably shouldn't do that. And it depends on what, what their policies are. So let me illustrate this. Imagine you lived in Germany in the 1920s. Think what happened in Germany between 1920 and 1945. So you know where it's going. It's escalating. So imagine you're, it's 1920. A Christian friend tells you that he just joined the National Socialist German, Germany Workers' Party, so the Nazis. How would you respond if you knew anything about what they believed? Maybe you'd say, yeah, uh, I don't know, that's a good idea. But would, would your church excommunicate him? Not at that point, not in the 1920s. But by the 1930s, what the Nazi party represented was, was much clearer, and the voices in your church hopefully would, would argue for excommunication as evidence in the 1934 Barman Declaration. That's when the confessing church publicly denounced all Nazism as unchristian. Now, how much more would that be the case in the 1940s when there are concentration camps? My point, I'm not trying to say that that's happening right now. I'm trying to establish an example that we can agree on and then say, all right, if we're in another situation, how might that parallel that one? Because we're not at the concentration camp level yet, but you might say, I wonder, I wonder uh, if, if voting with one particular party makes me complicit in a particular injustice, and if and if Christians shouldn't do that. I'm asking a question. I'm actually not, I'm not preaching that right now. I'm asking the question. We've got to ask questions like that. Um, so let me just tell you how my conscience is working right now, and it will illustrate the point here. So I'm, I'm guessing some of you disagree with me. That's fine. Uh, again, it could be wrong. But uh, it looks like the political landscape in the, in the United States right now has is, is radically changed. Uh, the, the Democratic Party has adopted shockingly, in my view, shockingly extreme views on abortion. Uh, so they've doubled down on third trimester abortions, uh, sometimes commending a woman's choice to kill an accidentally delivered child. Uh, the party champions so-called gay marriage, transgender rights, other LGBTQ plus rights in the name of a tolerance that punitively threatens the religious liberty of evangelical institutions like schools, and churches and adoption agencies. I don't think what I said was controversial. That, that, that's happening. Uh, I mean, it's not controversial whether it's true. That, I, I think that's, that's, those are facts. The Republican Party has, has its issues too. Character flaws and injustice are not exclusive to one political party. But here's, here's my point as I'm trying to share with you how my conscience is working. I, when I think of this party or that party, I don't think that they are morally equivalent. I think they're both shot through with problems, 
but that if you put them on a scale, one is worse than the other, from my perspective. Some evils are greater than others. Now, in the United States today, some Christians seem troubled by their choice of party. Others don't feel that they can align with either party, so they hold their nose and pick the lesser of two evils. Others wonder if both parties are off limits. Maybe it's like the situation with the Nazi party. I don't think a particular political party is a perfect fit for any Christian. If I did, then my, I think then party thinking would be subverting my Christianity. Uh, but what I recommend that our church excommunicate someone for voting Democrat, I'm not there. I'm not there yet. But I think we should ask the questions like that. Those are hard questions to help us think through where are we, what's off limits, what isn't. And then if, it, if we're not going to excommunicate for it, then that means you have to allow for a fellow Christian to do that and be able to fellowship with them. So that these, are, these are hard questions we've got to think through here. Again, uh, let me, I'm still trying to tell you why I'm thinking this way. Um, let me start with what John Piper wrote in 1997. This has this really influenced how I think about politics. Short paragraph. No endorsement of any single issue qualifies a person to hold public office. Being pro-life does not make a person a good governor, mayor, or president. But there are numerous single issues that disqualify a person from public office. For example, any candidate who endorsed bribery as a form of government efficiency would be disqualified, no matter what his party platform was. Or a person who endorsed corporate fraud, say under $50 million, would be disqualified no matter what else he endorsed. Or a person who said that no black people could hold office. On that single issue alone, he'd be unfit for office. Or a person who said that rape is only a misdemeanor. That single issue would end his political career. And these examples could go on and on. Everybody knows a single issue that for them would disqualify a candidate from office, for office. I believe, he says, that the endorsement of the right to kill unborn children disqualifies a person from any political, uh, from any position of public office. It's simply the same as saying that the endorsement of racism, fraud, or bribery would disqualify him, except that child killing is much more serious than those. Now, I'm not saying you have to agree with that position, I'm sharing with you that that's what's influencing how I'm making my political judgment. Uh, I find that reason, that reasoning, that logic compelling, and it's influencing how I make political judgments when it comes to, to voting. Now, I resonate with a, a theologian and ethicist I like to read. His name is John Frame. And he says, it's an art to weigh the importance of different issues and to come to a godly conclusion. Each of us should have a large amount of tolerance for other Christians who come to conclusions that are different from ours. Rarely will one issue trump all others, though I must say I will never vote for a candidate who advocates or facilitates the killing of unborn children. That's John Frame. Uh, and that's, that resonates with, with, with how I'm thinking, with my conscience. Now, what, what I'm wondering now is if a single issue that is a central non-negotiable platform of a political party can disqualify a political party at a point in time, at least when we're talking about voting for officers at the highest levels, like president and congress and governor. Think about that. I've got to ask that question. And I think that uh, societies are filled with injustice, but some injustices are worse than others. And I, 
And the most significant injustice by far in our society is killing unborn children. It's, it's like when you go to the, the doctor to get your eyes checked and you look at the chart and there's a big E at the top. If you can't see the E, you're in trouble. And when it comes to evaluating the, the morality of what's going on in our nation, if you can't see that abortion is a problem, your political moral barometer's off. Like that's the big E on the eye chart. Over 60 million children murdered since 1973. Remember the, in the, in the uh, World War II, the Nazis, that was about 6 million? 60, 6, zero, 60 million children dead. So there are many injustices in our society, and I don't mean to minimize any of them, but none is bigger than this one. Over 60 million babies in the image of God are dead. And I think that in 50 to 100 years, societies are going to look back at Americans at America's abortion era that began in 1973, and I think they're going to view it similarly to the way we now view American slavery and Jim Crow laws. Like, how did that happen? What were people thinking? That's so clearly sinful. And that's happening right now. So I conclude for me, I can't vote with a clear conscience for a politician who supports the high-handed sin of abortion, at least if there's another candidate who's pro-life. I've got a couple pages of notes here of just recent quotations from uh, leaders in the Democratic Party basically saying to be a Democrat is to be pro-choice. Like, I, I, it's, it's, it seems like a central plank in the political platform. So I'm, I'm having a hard time trying to justify how I could, could go that way. Now, I do have friends who are Christians who do think they can vote that way. And we've talked. And what they're thinking is, the way you vote, it's going to affect lots of things, and voting for a president isn't going to have as big an impact on that as these other issues, and I'm weighing things, and I hate abortion, it's sinful, but I love these other things. That, that's how, how they talk. And if that's the way you're going to reason, uh, I personally am not convinced of that, but it's not, I'd say, we can agree to disagree. It wouldn't be a, we're going to pursue church this one type deal. Um, that's personally where I am, I'm at right now. I'm not sure how, how your pastors might talk about this. Um, so here's where I'm landing. At this point, I think it's at best extremely unwise and possibly sinful, possibly sinful, to vote for a pro-choice candidate for president or congress or governor. And at the same time, I'm not convinced our church should excommunicate a member for, for doing that. Uh, that there, there are different and viable strategies for, uh, for voting. But we should think about whether we're approaching a bar, barman declaration moment like they did in Germany. Again, I could be wrong in my political judgments, and I'm guessing some of you might have questions. <laughs> Here we go, I'm Paul. Gonna, I'm yep. Go. All right, go. Sorry to surprise you with this, but thank you for... Yep. Um, Humility and wisdom, just how you stress that, I think is so important. Thank you. We've got nine minutes or eight yep. minutes. Yep. All right. Any questions? I'll repeat them, but, but do speak as loud as you can so we can hear. So the question was, speak to some of the counter approaches that might cause someone to lean more progressive or left. Sure. 
so I recently gave the same talk uh, to the Just Gospel Conference in, in uh, the D.C. area in March, right before COVID. And the BDN of Wheelie hosted the conference, and he got up right afterwards, and we had a little 10-minute conversation about this. So he, I, I think he'd be an example of this. Um, and he said, that Piper quote mentioned racism and bribery and fraud. And he said, could we add treason to the list? He's obviously tr- going after Trump, uh, President Trump. Um, in his mind, I think he'd argue that there are other issues like immigration, what he would call uh, racial justice. Uh, from his vantage point, voting one way rather than the other would be more productive. And I disagree with the political wisdom of that, but he's, as far as I can tell, a rock-solid, God-loving, conservative, theologically brother, and we just differ in our political judgments, and we can love each other in those differences. Is that fair? Yeah. Good, thank you. Mm She asked if late-term abortions, abortion is not crossing the line. Um, okay, sorry, live baby, yes. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, I, I agree with you. Um, what I'm having to weigh is uh, brothers and sisters who would argue, what does a vote entail? Does it make me complicit in everything that the platform stands for? And they may argue, no. It's doing X, Y, and Z that I think is good, even though I'm against this. So it gets into the philosophy and strategy of what a vote entails. And we could, I could tell you what I think a voting entails, but that's just what I think. We can't say, turn in your Bibles to, and let me, I mean, there, there's not a democratic republic in the Bible that we can go to. to <laughs> so that's why this is a wisdom call. Uh, but I'm, I'm sharing your sympathies. That's why personally, in my conscience, I can't go there. And I wouldn't counsel someone to go there or recommend it. In fact, if I had a friend who's thinking that way, I would try to persuade him not to. But I'm not convinced that that's a church discipline issue. Yeah. Another question? I guess rights that God has always given us. So how should we respond as Christian when the government seems to impinge upon our constitutional rights, even though they may not be directly God-given rights? So this gets in the issue of civil disobedience. When you consider civil disobedience, you want to weigh a whole bunch of principles. Uh, those include that uh, we must obey the government, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2. Uh, those include that we must obey God rather than men when there's a con- conflict. Acts uh, gives some great illustrations of that. Also, uh, there are other illustrations in the Bible where not didactic, not, not like teaching li- literature part of it, but uh, stories that portray people disobeying the government and they portray it in a, in a good light. So like Exodus chapter 1, the Hebrew midwives are disobeying Pharaoh and it portrays them as heroes. Uh, Esther goes into the king's presence when that was breaking the law, but portrays her as courageous. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will not uh, worship the, the idol of King Nebuchadnezzar, portrays them as courageous for doing that. Daniel won't uh, stop praying. The text, he goes to lion's end, and the text vindicates him for that. Uh, the wise men don't go back to King Herod when he says, come back to me if, and tell me where Jesus was born. And, and, and God in a dream told him not to go back. And we've got, of course, Peter and, uh, preaching in Acts. Uh, we must obey God rather than men. So those are examples of the principle that civil disobedience can be a God-honoring thing. But when it comes to issues where 
let's say, imagine a scenario where uh, the government might require you to wear a mask. Um, uh, what do you do with that? Uh, well, you, you want to obey Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, maybe even give the government the benefit of the doubt for a while. At some point, it could be legitimate to say, uh, this is overdone, overblown, and this is unreasonable. Uh, are we at that point? I don't know. Uh, what MacArthur's doing in Southern California, I'm cheering him on. I admire him. I'm a pastor of a church in northern Minneapolis. We're wearing masks. Uh, there, there's more than one way to respond. But does that help a little bit? Uh, there's a lot more we could say. You know. Good. Alex? Yes, uh, I have one. What is the Christian stance when the politician's personal behavior differs from the political action? So how should a Christian respond when a politician's personal behavior differs from their political action? His example is that, let's say, a politician commits adultery. Um, the Bible doesn't tell us how that affects our voting in a democratic republic. So there's not like a, here's the way Christians have to respond in those issues. Uh, it requires wisdom. So personally, I don't think it's asking too much to say, I just want to vote for somebody who's decent. It doesn't have to be a Christian. It just has to be decent, like, like you know, are like basic character. He doesn't murder people. He doesn't, he's not a racist. He doesn't commit adultery. He keeps his word. Just basic stuff. Uh, it's pretty low bar. Uh, to me, that, I think that's, that's just me personally. Uh, but I don't think we could say from the Bible that it forbids you ever voting for someone who committed adultery. Personally, I don't trust a person like that. Uh, I don't think they're a person of integrity. Uh, but I can't say with the authority of God's word, if you do that, you're sinning. There's so much more we could say there. Yeah. Uh, I can't say that... I, His actions are yes, sinful. Yes, of course adultery is sinful, but voting is not necessarily sinful. Thank okay. you for clarifying. I didn't mean to imply that Andy, adultery wasn't sinful. Andy, I'll ask you the last question. Yeah. Can you just give us some counsel on news intake? Yeah. Which yeah. is a huge piece of this for all of us as Christians. Yeah. Um, I would recommend you not watch any TV that's, that's news, even uh, no talk radio. Uh, ser I'm serious. That wasn't a joke. Uh, so I get all my news from sources that report facts, and if they have a bias, and everyone does, they tell you what it is, and I vet the people who are doing it. So, I, I know I'm, so every, here's what I do. Every morning while I'm working out, I listen to two podcasts for news, the world and everything in it, the world magazine, and Al Mohler's the briefing. And then I follow some people on Twitter who I trust, and then I'm on a thread with some political junkies in Washington, D.C., and they text like 30 times a day. But I mute that conversation, check once a day. Uh, but I, I keep up, and it's plenty for me. And then it's, it's plenty. But I, oh, I, also, I also read some journals that... If the day-to-day -day thing is, is what I'd, I'd say be aware of. Um, and if you get like the weekly or the monthly perspectives, on, on issues that can be more helpful. Because you think about it, what's fueling the daily news? It's urgent, you know, newsflash, breaking. We need your attention right now. Uh, that's how they make money. Uh, they're basically trying to get you coming back by scaring you, making you think that you're missing what's happening. And the whole news cycle on TV and the radio, it's entertainment. And so I don't recommend it. 
Thank you. <laughs> that was kind of politi- uh, very opinionated, but that's... Thank you. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. So we're going to dismiss here.